Do you like sports? Do you like art? What about science? Giraffes? Giraffe scientists that paint rugby games? It's all available on Audible, the biggest audiobook site with the largest selection of audiobooks this side of the inner solar system. No need to use your boring old eyes anymore. The ears are the future, my friend. Why, you're using them right now. So check out Audible and get your listen on. Go to www.readlearnlivepodcast.com slash audible to start your 30-day free trial today. The, the most sensible approach is a kind of uh, reconnection with biodiversity and then also a kind of daily moderation. And so, you know, get your hands back in the dirt, plant a garden, um, work with local governments and regional governments to um, return biodiversity to parks and green spaces. Hello and welcome to Read, Learn, Live, the podcast about improving yourself through literature. I'm your acclaimed host, John Manaster, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 50. That's right, 5-0. We did it. Congrats, everyone. I've been doing this since 2016. Thanks to all of you wonderful people for listening to me ramble, and uh, I think 50 is a good number. We made it. As always, if you have ideas for books you'd like to see featured or of authors you want to put me in touch with, you can reach me at J-O-N at readlearnlivepodcast.com. Today, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with author Rob Dunn about his book, Never Home Alone. Rob Dunn is a professor in the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University and in the Natural History Museum of Denmark at the University of Copenhagen. He is also the author of five books. He lives in Raleigh, North Carolina. I hope, hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Read, Learn, Live podcast. I'm your host, John Manaster. Especially excited, especially excited this January, cold January day to be here with Rob Dunn, author of Never Home Alone. Rob, say hello. Hey, it's great to be on the show. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, Rob. Glad to have you. And I'm really excited about this one because this is uh, sort of a, the ultimate nerd out for me. I really enjoy science and the opportunity to speak with uh, doctors and scientists about their work and especially about how it can influence our everyday life and, and what we can learn from that. And I think this, this book, when I heard about it, I was like, this is exactly the right kind of book uh, for me to learn about and for, for everyone listening to, that'll help them better understand their world. So I think a great way to start off is just, you know, tell us about the book. What is, what is Never Home Alone all about? Well, it's it's I mean it's it's a good day to think about the book because um, it, today most people spend most of their day twenty three hours or so indoors in cars and buildings, um, and so the book is really the story of when we're indoors, what do we live with, which species, and how those species have changed through time, and what that means for our health and well being, and the sort of overarching thesis is that we tend to imagine that what we want to create indoors with us in these spaces we spend so much time in is a lifeless world. And what we more and more see is that the opposite is true, is that our, our health and well-being benefit when we have lots of kinds of species with us indoors, when we get rid of the things that are really bad, but we let the rest flourish. And I think this is really at odds with how many of us think about our daily lives, and it's at odds with what we imagine for the future. And so the book explores that that tension. 
Yeah, I think that uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what I like to do first is is kind of break down a little bit of the creative process before we get into the the actual meat of the book, and and I kind of want to start off by just asking a very broad question, uh, and, and just try and get a sense of what your writing process is. How did you go from okay, I'm doing this to now I have the the book in the in hand? Yeah, so, so it's an interesting question. So I, I was just talking to the the science writer Carl Zimmer about how he writes, and he he talked to one of my classes, and he said that. Um, you know, he always has the, everything scripted when he writes his proposal. So once the proposal goes in, the book is essentially done, and then he's filling in the pieces. Um, and I think I'm a little bit different in that the proposal is where I think about what the book might look like given what I understand about a topic. But for me, one of the really exciting things is actually as I dig into pieces of the topic to th see things um, both that I didn't know to be true and that the whatever field I'm talking about where the most people seem not to know it's true. So to make sort of micro discoveries within the bigger narrative. And, and so one of my my so my processes is to know enough about the idea to pull together a proposal for what the book might look like and then start to surround myself with the material about the book. And so I'm in this stage for an, a new book right now where there are books about topics that relate to that book everywhere in my life. My office is full. My house is full. The basement of my house is full the overflow from the rest of my house. While well, I sort of just intensively dig into that topic, I read about it. I pretend I'm writing about it. I start to write, but the truth is like most of what I'm doing at this point in, in writing won't get used ever. Um, but I have to feel like I'm moving forward. Like if I don't, I mean, in theory, I guess I could just read and read and read and think and think and think and, and then later begin to write. But I have to somehow, some part of me needs to feel as though I'm making progress. And so this morning I wrote a thousand words on that new book and, um, I won't admit it to myself now, but almost certainly none of that will ever go in the book. Like it's just like the wheels spinning so I can start thinking about it. I need to see what the stories other people have talked about are. And then I need to see like, what are the stories that are being missed? Hmm. And to see those I've got to have, I mean, often it requires having, um, two whole stories side by side so I can kind of start to see where they connect. Uh, so what was the, what was the hardest part about putting Never Home Alone together? So most of my books touch on science that I um, in, am involved in, but they're not about the science I do as much. And so they're not about my lab, people I work with directly. And so, so this book was different in that way. And uh, superficially, you might imagine that makes it easier because I know all this stuff, you know, like I know what we did. I just have to tell that story. But it actually made it much, much harder in a book context because uh, I then know not just like the main characters, but I know all the other characters. And um, as much as I would love to tell, you know, the story of the science involving the 50 people that were involved, um, no one wants to read that. It's almost impossible to read because you have to establish all of those characters. And so mm -hmm. how do you figure out which are these main threads, which are the main people? That was a real struggle in this book. Hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into the book a bit. There's there's a lot to talk about here, so I want to be sure we have time 
uh, to really explore all the interesting stuff that you brought up. Uh, so I think really, you know, you start out in the beginning of the book sort of with the first person that really kind of began doing this this sort of work, and that was Antony van Leeuwenhoek, see if I pronounced that right. Um, but maybe just talk about who he was for a little bit and why what he did was so unusual and strange and, and what he found. Yeah, so he, he was, um, so he lived in Delft in the late 1600s, early 1700s, and um he was re- relatively well-to-do uh, sort of local official. He started off um, working with fabrics, and he became interested in science. Uh, he wasn't trained as a scientist, and he became interested in using microscopes to see what was around him. And the early days of how that started to happen for him, we don't really have a very good look into. But at some point, he becomes kind of obsessed with seeing the world around him. And, and starts to shine this little microscope on his daily life and, and sees things that other people seem to have missed and then, and then begins to write the Royal Society in London basically with, you know, look, I, I found this thing in my kitchen. I think it's really interesting. Do you think it's interesting too? And initially they thought he was just a, a crank. And eventually they became convinced that in fact he was making new observations and, and so he would spend the next 60 years observing his own daily life, much of it in his house. And so his own pepper water, his, his own sperm, um, everything he could find in his kitchen cabinet. And in doing so, he discovered um, s- single-celled uh, microscopic life forms for the first time, so protists. Um, but then he also discovered bacteria for the first time. And, and so... There was this whole world that as he made these discoveries suddenly appeared before him and he could imagine nothing other than spending the rest of his life once he made that discovery kind of running into that world. Hmm. And yeah, it was interesting to read about that guy and, and, and kind of especially that initial skepticism um, from the status quo. And I think that a lot of scientists face that. Um, so, you know, you, you wrote about how that, that kind of interest in what he was doing kind of died down, faltered after a little while, and people weren't really paying attention as much to that sort of thing. Um, you know, what, what happened then once germ theory came along? What, what did we think about in terms of what was going on inside our homes? Yeah, so, so once, so Leibniz had the idea that some of the species in his house might cause problems. He didn't think about them as pathogens in quite the way we would now, but he had some inkling. But but a hundred years or so later, it started to become very clear that indeed some of the species around us could be super deadly, that they could cause disease. Um, and once that started to emerge as an idea, there was this reasonable focus on figuring out which of which species were causing disease and then controlling those species. But at the same time, the, the broad view of the life around us started to shift because as we began to understand that some of the microscopic life could kill us, there became this sense that, well, maybe most of the other microscopic life is also suspect. And, and so the, the sense of wonder that Leeuwenhoek had for his daily life, for his home, for his backyard, it disappeared. And the, the focus really became on this the early stages of a kind of war with the species around us. 
Mm. So, you know, taking those two elements together, that initial optimism and then that kind of fear and war that, that started to create tension, how did those two things bring us forward to today? Kind of, you know, where, where did we stand? And then how did that fit in with the work that you and Noah start to, started to do? Well, so, so um, through time, what happens is we figure out how to control through public health, um, through antibiotics, through vaccines, uh, many of the most dangerous species in our houses. Um, but as we do, at the same time, we get better and better at making stronger and stronger sort of weapons against other species. And, and the people who sell those weapons, you know, the pesticide companies, the antibiotic uh, producers to a um, modest extent, the antimicrobial producers, they have a big vested interest in convincing us that, well, not only are those species that we know are dangerous bad, but the other stuff is suspect too, so we should try and kill it all. And so we fast forward, we end up with this moment we, we're in now, especially in the U.S., where there seems to be this sentiment, uh, this very common sentiment, um, that if people could kill all of the non-human life in their homes apart from their dog and their cat, um, that they would. That, that our job is to seal off the rest of the world and sterilize. Um, and, and what we lost somewhere in that transition was the realization that even in the early germ theory days, people had a sense of this, that yes, there are these dangerous species, but, but there are also all these other species that are either benign or we now understand in many cases beneficial. And so essentially the, 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 the war went too far and we started to get rid of things that we need to survive. And so what was the first round of work that you and Noah did to kind of try and get a sense of what was really going on inside our homes? Well, we, we did what at the time felt like a very modest study, but turned out to be, a, I think, the first study of its kind to go back into houses using modern techniques uh, for the identification of bacteria to figure out what, you know, how many species are in houses. If there are 50 that we know might be bad, how many other things in addition to those are there? And so we initially had people swab different places in their houses and, and like 40 houses. And then we eventually upped that to about a thousand houses. And, and then those swabs were sent back to us in the lab and we would decode the DNA on the swab to see which species were in those homes. And almost immediately there were a whole bunch of surprises relative to that sort of standard story we'd been telling ourselves about the danger filled world. And one of them was that every place we had people swab, every home, every surface was covered in life. And it's now 10 years into this kind of work and we've never swabbed a surface in a house that wasn't covered in life. And so I think that's like a key early take home is that you actually don't get to choose to make a sterile environment in your house. We never ever do. The only thing you have some control over is which species are going to be there. Um, and then a second, uh, realization was that different habitats, even quite small ones, and this would have been, you know, not news to Leeuwenhoek, um, had very different species. So different things in the salt shakers versus the toilet seat versus the refrigerator. Um, and then the third, and this is not surprising to microbiologists, but it was, I think, surprising to the broader discussion of our houses, 
was that the houses were astonishingly diverse. And so we've now found more than 100,000 kinds of bacteria in houses. Yeah, and to several of those points, I, I enjoyed the discussion you had about the International Space Station and the efforts to look at what what, what sort of life was going on there. Uh, it seems like you know NASA has all these efforts in place to create a sterile environment, but yeah, you know maybe talk a little bit about what sort of discoveries were made on the ISS. Yeah, so 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 Jenna Lang at the University of California Davis did a study where she used our same approaches to work with the astronauts to swab the International Space Station. And you might imagine, like, if you live in an apartment in New York and you like you think you can really seal stuff up uh, in your apartment um, and really really sterilize it, uh, you're probably not going to do a better job in sterilizing things than the space station does, right? The, their windows don't open. Um, Nothing's drifting in from outside. Uh, there's no dog walking in and out. And everything that goes up there gets treated in one form or another to to, to clean it to, to some or another extent, whatever that word um, means in this case. And, and so th I think it's kind of an answer. Like if we keep trying to clean and clean and clean and clean and clean our homes, this is what we'll get. We'll get the space station. And what the space station turns out to look like is kind of like a toilet seat. Um, that it's, you know, mostly microbes associated with the astronauts' bodies um, that are kind of their bodies are falling apart while they're there in space, just like ours do on Earth, and the microbes from their bodies drift all around the space station. And then microbes associated with the breakdown of the space station itself, so things that are living on the space station. And, and so if you clean and clean and clean, that's what you'll get. Um, and we now know that that has all sorts of negative out, uh, consequences for health and well-being, for ability to make the food you can, you, that you might want. Um, and so I think that's a, you know, in a way, the space station is one future we tend to imagine for ourselves. And it seems like a very problematic one to me. Hmm. Yeah. And, and kind of connecting that with then... You know, you know, once we learn about all the different types of bacteria in an environment, whether it's our homes, whether it's the space station, then, you know, you mentioned that there are some positives and there are some negative ones. You know, in terms of trying to understand the negative ones, you talk a little bit about uh, the cholera outbreak in London and the sort of this, this snow and his maps of infectious disease transmission. So, you know, maybe, could you maybe just kind of get into those maps and how they helped us understand transmission and then how that ultimately ties in with the well and the bacteria and, and kind of the story here. Yeah. So, so cholera bacteria are this, um, very, very, very nasty fecal oral, um, bacteria species that gets from some people's feces inadvertently into people's bodies and, and wreaks havoc. Um, and during cholera outbreaks, many, many people, often die. And in the, um, in the time of snow in, in London, there was one of the worst cholera outbreaks um, ever seen. But it wasn't understood at the time what was causing the cholera outbreak. And it, it was mostly blamed on, you know, bad odors and poverty making bad odors. And germ theory, although it had started to make some progress, wasn't really uh, helping. And so what's Snow did was to, to map out um, with the help of others where cholera cases were 
and then to map that in relation to where people were getting their water. And, and so in, in doing so, he was able to show that there was one well um, uh, that seemed to be associated with in one of these cholera outbreaks, all of the people that were um, developing cholera. And it would later turn out that there was one dirty diaper that had contaminated that well with cholera bacteria, um, and that was enough to kill whole neighborhoods. And so the, the map became a way both to start to understand what was going on and then to show people that uh, it was sort of the map as evidence of the link between the the he didn't he didn't know which bacteria it was at the time between the, the organism that caused the disease and the disease itself. Um, mm. It was a kind of tr truth and storytelling in a way. Um, and I, I think that the, I mean, it's a very, the Snow story is really interesting in terms of how long it took people to believe that he was right um, uh, and how relatively late this is in our, in our human story, right? This is the 1800s. It's, it's not um, the year 10. Um, um, it's, yeah. it's two, 200 years after Leeuwenhoek, right? So it's or almost 200 years after Leeuwenhoek. Um, and, and so, but the other thing that's interesting is it's one of many diseases uh, caused by a bacteria species or a virus for which the control is now really very simple. You know, we just need to prevent fecal microbes from getting into drinking water. If you're able to do that, it's controlled totally um, in the same way that for diseases against which we can vaccinate. If you're able to vaccinate, you can control or diseases that are tran transferred on people's hands, if you wash hands with soap and water. And, and so I, I think that that's really important because these are public health measures that really work, they're really simple, um, and those are the actual things that prevent us from getting sick, in contrast to a lot of the things that we tend to do in our homes, where there's actually very little evidence of any positive effect on our well-being, and growing evidence that they're, they're um, dopey for a bunch of other reasons. Um, and I think, yeah, and that, yeah, go ahead, John. Sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to say and that, that actually perfectly leads into my next question, which is trying to understand the, the dangers of doing some of these things that we think are helpful, but maybe aren't. And I think that's a bit related to Hansky and some of what you talked about in terms of his work and his work in collaboration with others to understand the rapid rise of uh, chronic inflammatory diseases like allergies and asthma and how that's connected to our efforts to, to you know, make our environment cleaner that could be actually backfiring. Yeah, so, so what, what Hansky, the Ilka Hansky is the um, person you're mentioning, and so he was a Finnish scientist who died too young, and um, he trained as a dung beetle ecologist and a sort of tropical ecologist. He's from my um, lineage of kinds of, you know, how we study things. But he became really interested in, and why allergies and asthma were becoming so common and why they seem to become, be becoming particularly common in regions in which biodiversity was being lost. Forests were being cut down, backyards were being paved. There seemed to be this link between the, the metaphorical ache he felt for the loss of biodiversity and, this, and the places in which people were feeling the very real ache of allergy and asthma and these other inflammatory diseases. And so he t uh, teamed up with a Finished team of epidemiologists. And what they started to show, this larger group, 
was that if, if you looked within a particular town in Finland or across the border between Finland and Russia, where you have very similar people with different lifestyles, um, what, what they were able to, to show was that as the vegetation around people's houses changed, the microbes in their houses changed, the microbes on their skin changed, and their risk of allergy and asthma changed. And more specifically, they showed that as the diversity of plants and backyards changed, it reduced the diversity of microbes in the skin of people, and that in turn seemed to lead to increases in allergy and asthma. And, and so, really compelling study, really interesting. It links what we do outside to, what we, to how we live inside. And what's happened in the years since is that we've begun to get more and more understanding that this is a pretty general pattern, that when we reduce the number of kinds of species in our backyards and in our homes, we change what we're exposed to, what our kids are exposed to. And when we seem to lead our immune systems to a sort of dysfunction, um, and, and it's happening at enormous scales, I mean, rates of allergy and asthma are skyrocketing. Um, and it's tricky because it's easy to break a relationship to biodiversity and nature. It's much harder to imagine how we fix it. So let's imagine, you know, you live in a neighborhood where you have enough biodiversity, your kids put their hands in the dirt, they're exposed to the species they need, and then it all gets paved. Um, how do you restore that connection so that their kids don't suffer the same problems of allergy and asthma associated with that change or Crohn's or inflammatory bowel or all these other things? Um, and, and so it's, it's a really important area of research. It's very uh, challenging. But it's also very clear that, that a lot of these problems are associated with this loss of exposures to species we need. Yeah, that was a, a big takeaway for me as well. And I think that was uh, so, so interesting to learn. Is it something that, you know, every little bit counts such that the extent to, you know, people can have indoor plants or, you know, maintain a backyard that has more trees than, you know, than pavement? Uh, are those little things something, you know, things people can do to, you know, uh, at least start? Yeah, yeah that, that's that's a good point. And so I, I do think every little bit counts. Um, probably some little bits count more than others, but I think we don't have a great understanding of which yet. I mean, two quick anecdotes. One, one is that there was a nice study recently of a hospital in the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, if I remember correctly, um, in which they compared ho hospital rooms that open their windows with hospital rooms uh, that have like the very best air cleaning circulation systems. And what they found was that the hospital rooms that opened their windows had more kinds of bacteria and fewer pathogens. And, and so there's a really simple uh, th thing to do, right? You open your window, you let a little bit more of nature out. And in that hospital context, that's better than the very best technology we have. And so it's really simple, but I also think pretty damning in the sense that you know, we imagine we're the sophisticates, we're so, you know, technologically advanced. Um, and, and yet the devices we use to clean our air do a shittier job than just opening the window would. Um, uh, an another example is dogs, that if you look at places like Manhattan and look at people who have dogs, uh, they their kids tend to have a reduced risk of both allergy and asthma. And it's not totally clear what's happening there, but one possibility and I, I personally, I think this is, is what's going on, 
is that the dogs are sort of a last connection to nature. So you're a kid who doesn't go outside, but your dog is bringing in some soil microbes, some leaf associated microbes, and just a little bit of that exposure is some of the time enough uh, to help those kids' immune systems work normally. It's kind of it's kind of gross because I mean it's also like <laughs> you depend on the 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 vulgar ordinariness of a dog to keep you healthy, but um, you know sometimes health is gross. That's yeah. I think one thing from reading the book that's abundantly clear, but but you know that's that's what it is. It's nature. Uh, so yeah, let's talk about fungi for a little bit. Um, talk, uh, maybe let's, let's get into what, what they are, how they're different than anything we've talked about before and, and what are good or bad about them. Yes. Yeah, so, so, um, fungi are this, it's an ancient kingdom of life. They're more similar to animals than they are to plants. Although we tend to group them with plants and put them in botany departments very often The people who study them. Um, and uh, you know, they're very unusual. They, uh, multicellular fungi. So many of, the, many of them are multicellular. Think about like the mushroom, um, and the hyphae that go through the wood that feed that mushroom. Um, th they release chemicals into their environment that break down the things they want to eat. And then they suck up what's been digested. And outside of our homes, we rely on fungi. I mean, to transform the world. If you really got rid of the fungi, we'd be in I mean, huge, I mean, we, existence as we think about it would be threatened. Um, mm. Inside houses, uh, uh, their effects can be more complex. Um, and in fact, in general, I would say for most groups of organisms, more biodiversity is better. I would say it's less clear to me for the fungi. And, and part of that is because part of what fungi do in houses is they, they eat everything. Um, there's very little in your house that they can't slowly break down. Uh, and so, and so that can become problematic. On the other hand, the one place where they're clearly beneficial in our houses is in our kitchens. And so your beer, your wine, your sourdough bread, your, um, kimchi, all of, uh, kombucha, all of those require fungi of different kinds, um, uh, in order to exist. And so they are benefiting us and costing us, but the, I think the, the, the fungi that are, that I became really fascinated with in writing the book and that I think challenge us societally are the, the ones that can eat our walls, especially, uh, when our walls get wet and they turn out to be rather mysterious. Yeah. That was, uh, I think Brigitte maybe, uh, yeah, Brigitte's the, drywall the, research. The um, yeah. Yeah. That part was just fascinating so it, the sort of implication there was that all new drywall comes with this fungi and you, you just need to do your best to not get the drywall wet otherwise you're in trouble essentially yeah i, I kind of think it's like the uh, sea monkey kit you can order in the mail you know you order the sea monkeys mm. and just add water the, um, yep. the fungi and drywall are kind of the same way they're already in there all you gotta do is add water and they grow over and eat your house bad news uh, uh did I, I forget what happened? I mean, did the did the drywall companies, you know, cop up to some sort of issue with the way they're constructing it? Is there, is there a way to fix this? Um, Birgit is working with drywall companies to think about, you know, at what step in the process of production of the drywall does this stuff get in there? Um, there's no resolution to it yet. And hmm. I mean, realistically, if your drywall doesn't get wet, it's very unlikely to be a problem. 
Um, but if it does get wet, uh, the simple take home is you need to get that drywall out of your house. And um, good data suggesting that if you do that, you can mitigate most or even all of the negative effects of, of, of that fungus being there in the first place. But you do Most need to pay attention. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, all right, well, let's move on to what we can see with our naked eye. Uh, you sort of got uh, more, more, more uh, macro as as the book went on. So you know, let's turn to arthropods. And you talked about camel crickets to kind of start off. So maybe tell us the story of camel crickets and uh, the big surprise that your team discovered. Yeah. So so n- native camel crickets have lived in houses for a long time. The very the earliest. Um, Human art depicting an insect is a is a camel cricket from a cave in France, and and in houses across North America, we've known that there are these camel crickets. They live in basements and cellars, and essentially they're cave and forest litter crickets that have moved into houses because our basements are kind of like caves. And so at one point we decided, well, we'll ask people, do you have these animals in your house? And so we asked, and almost immediately people responded. And what was weird was that we had a kind of a map from an old study of where the camel crickets should and shouldn't be. And the responses were, were not totally right relative to that map. And, and so it meant something was wrong. And I think scientists are often a little too eager to assume that it's the public that's wrong. Um, but we didn't know. It's, and I would say probably half of us assumed it was the public and half of us assumed it was something new. And so we asked people, you know, send us pictures of what you're seeing. And the pictures started to roll in. And what we realized was that unbeknownst to us and and largely to entomologists in general, that there was a giant Japanese camel cricket that had moved house to house across North America. And we kind of missed it. And so this was crazy because it's like the size of my thumb. And and so like it meant that many, many, many entomologists had gone in their basement, seen this thing and assumed somebody else knew it was there. In fact, that's what I did in my own house. I went downstairs. There were tons of these camel crickets. I thought, well, they're cool. Um, I bet someone's studying them. And it turned out no, nobody was. And so we wrote a paper about this. And we thought, ooh, everybody's going to be super excited. It'll be in the National Enquirer or the uh, Reader's <laughs> Digest. You know, crickets eat Manhattan. Um, yeah. Uh, but instead, what we got back mostly was, well, how do I squish them or what good are they? And mm. like as a scientist, like that's an awful question because we, you know, we just find these species intrinsically interesting. They histories as long as human history, no, no better or worse than humans intrinsically, all that kind of stuff that we taught ourselves. Um, but we started to think, well, okay, you know, what good might they have? Let's let's take this question earnestly. And so we started to think, and we know these crickets. Um, they live in caves, they live in leaf litter, they rely on food that's low in nutrition, and where even like carbon is often pretty hard to come by. So what if they have microbes in their guts that help them to break down really hard to break down foods? And what if some of those microbes would help us break down plastics or other waste um, produced by humans? And so and so we tried to, to find some of those kinds of microbes that might break down this one waste product we knew was a particular problem, this thing called black liquor, which I'd never heard of before. It's uh, the waste of the paper and pulp industry, and it's like um, lignin. It's the hard stuff from wood in an alkaline bath. It's just really terrible, and it gets burned. It's super stinky. 
not terribly good for you. Um, and so we tried to find some microbes from the camel cricket's gut, one camel cricket from my basement that might be able to break this down. And in the first camel cricket, we found a new species of bacteria able to break down this waste from the paper and pulp industry and turn it into at least a little bit of energy. And so it was, that was then super exciting. And it, it really jumpstarted us into thinking like, well, we found thousands of species of arthropods in houses. You know, what other uses are we missing? If, if this first try produces something this cool, you know, what are all the other things doing and what should we be studying? Yeah. And, and to kind of piggyback on that, you, you mentioned something interesting at one point, which was that you, you know, in terms of finding new species that then can have certain elements of them used for things that we want, you know, medicine or to break down waste or whatever, you mentioned that the approach that other science, some other scientists have used um, wasn't necessarily the one you might have done. And I think that was in relation to maybe Costa Rica or rainforests where you were saying, you know, millions have been spent to do a very systematic survey in terms of trying to find helpful uses for these animals uh, or plants or whatever. And it seemed like you were hoping to do something that was a bit more targeted. So I'm guessing this is an example of that. How, how would you apply kind of that goal or the way you wanted to pursue it to kind of further this research? Well, yeah. So, so there have been big projects to, to bioprospect, to sort of go into nature and find new cancer drugs or new antibiotics. And they, for the most part, started with with essentially a random approach. Let's screen species one by one until we find the useful one, and let's start with the biggest dollar value um, solutions. And so, you know, like cancer drugs is always like an, an early target. And the the problem with that is that there are lots and lots of species. And so if you're if you're screening one by one. Um, that's a long road. I mean, we don't know how many bacteria species there are, but some people think there are trillions. Um, and so what we did with the camel cricket, and what I actually think is a much more productive road, is to think about, well, what do we know about the natural history, the ecology and evolution of different organisms? And if we have a particular need, what's the best place to look? Um, and so we've actually been doing this, and our colleagues too, uh, repeatedly since that camel cricket, uh, study. And, and we found that it's, you know, pretty predictably by using ecology sort of insights from ecology and evolution and natural history, we can speed up discovery. And so another example was that, um, you know, we, we know that, uh, if we look at yeasts in nature, yeasts tend to uh, use insects to ride from one sugar source to another. And insects use the smells from produced by odors produced by yeast to find um, sugar sources. And so it's a, it's a kind of diffuse mutualism. And so Ann Madden, who was in the lab for a while, thought, well, what if we look to wasps uh, that are searching for yeast to see if we can use them to find new yeast for beer? And Ann was able to use that approach to find a new yeast that had never been used to produce beer before that makes a really terrific, terrific beer that you can now buy. Um, we had another example where we wanted to find a new antibiotic. And so Omar Halawani in the lab is looking to ants that we know use antibiotics to control the microbes in their nests. Um, again and again, like these, they're, they're pretty straightforward examples, but they require 
people that are trained like me, ecologists and evolutionary biologists, to meet up with people who know what the applied needs are. And science really divides us, and there aren't that many places where where we can get together. And so it requires, um, well, it requires going to lunch, but sometimes going to lunch is harder than it <laughs> might seem. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so, you, you know, you've mentioned antibiotics a couple times. Now might be a good place to just stop and, and make sure everyone has a clear understanding of how antibiotics work and why overusing them is becoming dangerous. Yeah, so, so an antibiotics um, kill a, a subset of bacteria. Depending on the antibiotic, it kills a different subset. Um, and they've been extraordinarily useful in allowing us to treat infections that we couldn't otherwise treat. And so antibiotics save many, many lives every year. Um, antibiotics do not treat any viral uh infections, any viral diseases. And so they don't treat cold, they don't treat flu. Um, but we misuse antibiotics for many things for which they don't work. And so for example, the cold and flu season, when, when it peaks is the single best predictor of antibiotic use. Because hmm. people mistakenly take antibiotics for cold and flus in, in such enormous quantities that it's a predictor of the market for the antibiotics. And you might say, well, okay, that's a misuse of the, the antibiotics, but you know, how bad could it be? But the problem is the more we use antibiotics, um, the more chances we give bacteria the opportunity to evolve resistance to the antibiotics. And so what resistance to antibiotics looks like is that, you know, you grow antibiotics, you grow a bacteria species on a petri dish, you apply the antibiotic and it has no effect whatsoever that they've developed some ability to withstand the antibiotics. And this can happen very, very quickly. And so in lab petri dishes, scientists have recently shown that even to the highest concentrations of antibiotics that ever are used, the bacteria within 11 days can predictably evolve resistance to those antibiotics. And so every time you overuse antibiotics, every extra dose increases the number of kinds of resistance that are out there and the number of bacteria that are resistant. Now this becomes a problem because if they're resistant to antibiotics, then we can't treat them with the antibiotic to which they're resistant. And so your kid goes to the hospital, uh, has what looks like a spider bite, turns out to be a staph infection. Well, 40 years ago, all staph infections were treatable with pretty over standard antibiotics. Now, many of them are resistant to all but the sort of most extreme antibiotics. And so the overuse of antibiotics have decreased the odds that that infection on your child's leg can actually be treated. And, and the, the real problem here is that our rate of discovery of new antibiotics is terrible. Um, that the rate of evolution of resistance vastly outpaces the rate at which we're finding new antibiotics to replace the old ones. And so we're in really troublesome territory. Yeah, and, and I think in addition to antibiotics, you kind of more broadly talk about how uh, the effort to battle nature with chemicals is a bit of a fruitless errand. Uh, may, maybe talk a little bit about some of the other things that we're doing beyond antibiotics to fight nature and uh, I also just like the story of the German cockroaches. So see, see if you can connect that in there, because that was really uh, amazing to me. 
Yeah, so so I mean, I'll back up a little bit to say that the, I mean, we do need these antibiotics and other biocides when we have a problem we really want to control. So, if you have an infection um, that's not that your body is unable to uh, deal with, you want to be able to use antibiotics to control that infection. Um, but we need to reserve those those biocides for when we most need them, because when we use them willy nilly, they lose all of their power. Um, and, and I think that the German cockroach example is a really good case of, you know, we have to remember that, that although we think of ourselves as very technologically savvy and powerful, that we're vastly outmatched by the power of natural selection and evolution. And so the German cockroach case, what happened was that scientists developed these roach baits that essentially attract roaches to sugar and in that sugar or associated with that sugar is the pesticide, which they then eat and die. And these were actually pretty clever things because it reduced the amount of pesticide that was being used. Um, and it was more or less targeting the roaches. And so, uh, it was a reasonable solution, but then it was noticed that roaches seemed it's in some regions to no longer be attracted to the roach baits. And what was first thought was going on is that maybe roaches were learning to avoid the roach baits. And then it became clear that what had happened is that the roaches, had, these German roaches, had, ex, act, had actually evolved um, in some way or another uh, to avoid the roach baits. That, that their offspring, even if they'd never been had a chance to learn anything, if presented with these roach baits with sugar, wouldn't go anywhere near them. And what we now understand uh, happened is that the roach brain actually became rewired so that the roaches, uh, when they detected the sugar, they perceived it as essentially bitter, as negative, as something to avoid. And so essentially they evolved to perceive the world totally differently in such a way that makes them totally resistant to the most clever kind of pesticide application we've ever come up with. And so they walk right up to the roach bait with the sugar in it. They sniff it, they taste it, they walk away. They could care less. It's terrible. Um, and so I think, I mean, it's, it's a really a, a testament to what natural selection can do. So long as there's variation for, in the population and, and what in resistance or in attractiveness to a poison or, or anything else, um, when we apply that, that biocide, Evolution is going to do its stuff. And in this context, it always makes me laugh a little bit in a dark way that, you know, you go to the, that, the aisle of, of, of killing agents in the store that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and seems to have now fused with the dog food aisle. That Many of them say, like, kills 99% of whatever. And I think the thing to remember is, like, that's the worst percentage to kill. <laughs> yeah. Because the 1%, that's that one roach that's left over that avoids the roach bait. That's the one bacteria lineage that's resistant to antibiotics. That's the one bacteria lineage that um, actually can grow on the uh, antimicrobial pump. 1% is the worst idea ever. Um, and yet that, that seems to be what we've culturally come to as a good idea. So, uh, you know, just to kind of keep going up in terms of our level of uh, the, the largeness of the species now, let's, let's talk about pets and, and cats and dogs. And you mentioned earlier how dogs could actually be beneficial in some cases. 
Um, and you talk how cats could be as well for our immune systems. But uh, I, I am very curious and, and was interested by this story of cats and the, the Toxoplasma gondii. Um, you know, what what is that? I mean, how did it end up in our homes? And uh, and what does it really do to us? I mean, that, that part was just so fascinating to me to learn about how it could actually be controlling us to some extent. Yeah, so this is a crazy parasite. And um, it was originally studied mostly in the context of mice and cats. And, and what was discovered, mice and rats and cats. And what was discovered is that um, its first stage in its life, it lives out in in things that inadvertently ingest a little bit of soil um, uh, typically. And so like a mouse or a rat is eating and gets a little bit of soil and it has one of the life history stages of this protist in it and the protist gets into the mouse or rat. But then this protist can only, this parasite can only have sex in a cat. And, and so, which is a weird dependency, right? And so you think like in cartoons, mice and rats, could eat my cats all the time in real life less often but what the parasite was shown to do is that it gets into the brains of the mice or rats and produces the precursors of dopamine and actually makes the mice and rats more active a more risky uh more risk taking um and it even makes them less afraid or even attracted to the smell of cat pee all of which helps the parasite by increasing the odds that the mouse or rat gets eaten by a cat and so that's a story that as a basic biologist I knew for a long time. It's in like our ecology textbooks, but doctors never cared about this at all, right? It had never had any medical context. It was like news of the weird, another strange thing that biologists should not have been funded to do. And, and then a Czech scientist, Jaroslav Fleger, um, started to believe that he himself had been infected by the same parasite and that it had taken over his brain and made him more risky. And he started to study whether it was possible that this parasite was having very similar effects to those it has on mice and rats on humans. Now, f fast forward a couple of decades, um, he was right. We now know that when people are infected with this parasite, their personality profiles are altered. Um, they're much more likely to take risks. They have a higher probability of being in car accidents. And even their probability of developing schizophrenia uh, appears to go up and that that's absolutely um wild right um but the other yeah. wild thing about this is that a huge proportion of the population has been infected with this either because they brought cats into their lives and were inadvertently exposed to the parasite and cat feces when cleaning up the kitty litter or because they've eaten meat that's not fully cooked and so they've ingested the the parasite that way. And so like 70%, 60 or 70% of the French are infected. Um, something like 40% of people in New York are infected. Uh, and, and so potentially this is having a huge effect on who we are and what we do at a massive scale. And until a decade or so ago, nobody but mouse or rat biologists cared about it at all. And so, and so I think it's a wild story. But it's also an indication there are 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 species in our houses and and very few of them have we studied at all. And so which other species are having this big of an effect? Many, probably many. <laughs> right. So, yeah, to kind of bring some of this home, you know, we've talked about that there are some goods, some bads. We're, we're learning as much as we can. And you know, you use this concept of, of rewilding, 
life around us instead of gardening it. And, you know, we talked a little bit about what people could do, you know, small scale in their homes um, to try and increase biodiversity. You know, I guess talk a little bit about what you mean by rewild the life around us. And, you know, what are some bigger things that we can think of, you know, as, um, as, as a citizenry, as a government, as a population to reverse these trends? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so I think you know, one thing to start with is that, first of all, we need to keep doing the public health things that work. So wash your hands with soap and water, get vaccinated, use antibiotics when, when your doctor tells you you have a bacterial infection that requires them. Um, you know, those things work. They save millions of lives. But at the same time, we need to let a little more nature back into our lives uh, with regard to the rest of those species, those other hundreds of thousands. Um, because the truth is the number of species that do us harm is very, very few. And I think in the long term, what will, I mean, just the way that humans are, what will ultimately move toward is some kind of gardening. We'll want to figure out what are the best species? How do we make more of them? How do we put them in a pot that we can sell to hipsters at a really high rate? Um, uh, <laughs> But we're not there yet and we won't be there for a while. And, and so I think in the meantime, the, the most sensible approach is a kind of uh, reconnection with biodiversity and then also a kind of daily moderation. And so, you know, get your hands back in the dirt, plant a garden, um, work with local governments and regional governments to um, return biodiversity to parks and green spaces work to make more green spaces, get potted plants in your house, um, open your windows, all of these things that also have other benefits to society. Um, and it looks as though they have benefits to our health and well-being via their effects on microbes too. Um, I, I think that, that that's a really important direction to take. And it can seem modest, except that we're moving so fast in the the other direction, that even a modest intervention, I think, can have a big impact. Sure. And that's that's good to hear that there's uh, there's still potential, there's still room for um, control here. Uh, so yeah, I think that was a good, uh, that was a kind of wrap up there on, on our interview. You know, we, are, we talked a little bit at the beginning about your your next book, and it has to do with food. Is there is there any more you want to uh, hint at there, or is there anything else you're working on, you know, in your lab or anything that you're particularly excited about after this book has been released? I, mean, I guess I'll just say, and the, the Never Home Alone closes with this, is that one of the places we do see uh, something healthier with regard to the species we're exposed to is in kitchens, and that where people are still connected to traditional fermented foods that's actually a way to connect to wild biodiversity and connect to human heritage at the same time. And, and so we're doing a lot of work in that vein on sourdough bread on kimchi, um, even on traditional beers and other fermented drinks to, to sort of, um, reconnect people with, with cooking while also reconnecting them with the science of the microbes on which that cooking depends. Uh, and that it's, it's been fun. It's tasty. Um, it's, it's rewilding and, uh, fun with friends all at the same time. That sounds great. I can't wait for that to come out and to, to learn more about that as a amateur chef. 
Well, th thanks so much for, for for talking today. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, let's let's do a couple quick. I like to do a thunder round. Let's do a couple quick uh, get to know you questions, and then we'll call it a day. Okay. okay. All right. So, what's your favorite food and or drink? Uh, right now, I'm really enjoying kimchi in part because I'm really interested in the ways in which the chefs who make kimchi flavor the kimchi with their body microbes. Mm. All right. Kimchi is delicious. Uh, where is your favorite place you've ever been? I like lots of places. There's an island in Croatia that's very special for me and my family. Well, that sounds great. I've been to Croatia. It's a, it's a beautiful country. Uh, and last question, if you could wave a magic wand and change any one thing, what would it be and why? If I could change any one thing, it would be um, the awareness of people of the value of daily nature, of biodiversity around them and their lives, and a connection to that biodiversity. That sounds great. Uh, I wish you luck, and I think this book is definitely along uh, helps along that path. So, um, again, if you haven't, uh, picked up on it, this book was absolutely fascinating. I'm so glad I got a chance to read Never Home Alone and, and learn more about all the biodiversity around here. Rob Dunn, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, John. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Read, Learn, Live. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. If you hated it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. And so it goes.